Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? Cool? Enjoying the weather? Yeah, till tomorrow. Cool. Uh, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning and joining us for worship. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Um, while you do that, while you open or load your Bible, I'll go ahead and uh, give you a couple of things. And then uh, really, I'd just like to dive into our time this morning. Uh, if you are new, uh, we do have connect cards in the chairs that are before you or that you are currently sitting on. Fill one out, leave it in the offering basket, take it to the connect desk. We'd love to hang out with you. In addition to that, as we're uh, walking through the Song of Songs, one of the things that you ought to know is that we love Jesus and we love his word. And so we preach directly out of his word. And so if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the rows uh, before you. So take one with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, or if you already have one, but you know someone that would benefit from having one, please take one with you. All right, I think you guys are there. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been in the Song of Solomon. It has produced some really good, fruitful discussion in the midst of some awkward tension and awkward space. I love it. I hope you have Two, uh, if it's quite all right with you, I would just love to dive into our time this morning. So if I asked you to define love, it's going to get kind of sappy, but if I asked you to define love, what would you tell me? If I asked you to give me a definition for love, what would you say? Maybe some of you might go the way of philosophy and quote Aristotle saying, love is composed of a single soul inhabiting two bodies. Some of you are like, eh, that's kind of weird. Some of you might be more simple and practical and, and go the way of tradition that is of Dr. Seuss when he writes, you know you're in love when you can't fall asleep because the reality is finally better than the dream. Perhaps some of you are like, no, I really want to go the classical route because I love poetry. And so maybe you would quote to me E.E. E. Cummings when he writes, love is the voice under all silences. The hope which has no opposite in fear. The strength so strong, mere force is feebleness. The truth more first than sun, more last than star. Today we're closing our time in the Song of Songs, and as I mentioned earlier, I hope that it has provided some beneficial and fruitful discussions in your life and in your MCs. Over the course of our time, we have examined this couple through various stages of their relationship, and today we land the plane and we come to their final advice in the realm of love. And here's what I would submit to you. Love is not simply an emotion, but loving behavior. And you have to have both, or it is not love. For instance, if you have the emotion without the behavior, then love is selfish and wicked. However, if you have the behavior without the emotion, then it is cold, or you are cold and callous. Biblically speaking, love is personal, it is persistent, and it is pursuing. 
And so what I'd like to do is read through these last few verses in this final chapter, and then I'll pray, and then we'll break it down as we have previously. Here we go, beginning in verse 5. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Verse 8. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with the boards of cedar. Verse 10, she responds, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. He responds, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions, listening for your voice, let me hear it. And she finally responds, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Let's pray. God, as we dive into your word, Lord, my prayer is that our hearts would be prepped to receive what you have for us this morning. That our hearts would be softened that our hearts would be receptive, that our hearts would be made convicted and comforted by the truth of your word. God, as we examine and continue to worship you, my prayer, Lord, is that you, Holy Spirit, would be at work in us, calling us to yourself, Or better yet, let me say it this way, for those who don't know Jesus, that they would come to know Jesus. For those who do know Jesus, that they would come to know him better. Each one of us is here this morning, not because uh, we have had uh, a great week or because we've uh, batted a thousand. In fact, we haven't. And so, God, we submit our inadequacies to you. We submit our sin before you, not only asking for forgiveness, but asking for comfort, Lord. And so may you speak to us through your word. May you transform us with your transforming grace. And Holy Spirit, may you be at work in us this morning and present with us this morning. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. This morning I want us to look at, as we look at these verses, I want us to look at the application of love in three different contexts. Let me tell you what they are. The first one is going to be the covenant of marriage. 
The second one is going to be family discipleship. And finally, the third one is going to be godly character. Those are the three contexts that we're going to be looking at with regard to the application of love. A lot of these are going to overlap and that they will apply to everybody. So here's where I want to start. I want to start with verses 5 through 7. I'm going to reread them, and then I want us to focus on two things where we're going to park ourselves in. Here we go. Verses 5. This way I can give you kind of that background. Verses 5 through 7. Beginning in verse 5, she says, Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. This apple tree that has been described to us over the past couple of weeks as we've studied the Song of Songs is one of great significance because this is where she feels protected as she is with him. But this is also the place where they have made love and been intimate with one another. So it is a very personal uh, description. It is a very personal place for them. And as she begins to poetically talk about her mother, what she is describing is that she is thinking about, hey, one day, especially as we are being intimate with one another, maybe we'll have kids. Verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Here are two things that I want to focus on when it comes to the covenant of marriage, and it's really going to be shown to us in verse 6 and 7. I want to focus on what it means to be a seal, and then I want to focus on the fact that love is stronger than death. So she says, I want to be a seal. She's not referring to the animal. She was referring to that of, of, uh, of, of ownership. In other words, when it comes to a seal or when it came to a seal as a, as a certificate of authentication, it was something that was stamped on a letter. It was something that was stamped on property to signify that you or whatever that object is belonged to someone else. And so what she is saying is that she wants to be his seal, that she fully, completely belongs to him, to her husband. She is not writing or talking about this in the context of slavery, but she is talking about this in the context of what it means to fully be given, giving herself to someone else. In this case, it is her husband. It is consistent with what she has said in previous chapters. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And so she writes that she wants to be his seal. And she talks about his heart, and she talks about his arm. And when she talks about his heart, she knows that she, or he knows, she knows that he is captivated by her. When she writes about his arm, she knows that as she is with him, she is protected. And so she puts those two things together, the heart and the arm, and she says, I want to be a seal. In addition to that, and we're going to touch on this in just a moment, put this in the back burner, as a seal, that means that others are going to see this. That when she writes things like, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine, it is not only in the context of the privacy of their bedroom, but also in the sphere of the public. That they're going to see what they look like in their marriage. To belong to someone means that you are well loved by that person. And with regard to being a seal, one of the things that I simply want to stress is how the strength of love is best developed. And in my opinion, the strength of love is best developed and it is best exercised 
in the mundane, the daily, the nothing special at Tuesday at 10 a.m. That is where love is strengthened, best exercised, and developed. Particularly as married couples, sometimes we look and only look at the macro details. The things that we ought to be doing for one another that more than likely we're going to be followed up with. But seldom, in my experience, seldom do we tend to look at the micro details. For instance, in Ephesians 5, Paul tells husbands to die for their wives as Christ has died for the church. And so he begins to talk about and unpack what it means to be uh, sacrificial or how to love sacrificially. It is easy to equate sacrificial love when you have a full-time job, but what does it look like to actually sacrificially serve one another after a long work day when the dishes still aren't done, when some of the chores still need to get taken care of, when mom is just filled with tears because the kids are running around the house and it's about to burn, and she just says, here, take them, do something. What does it look like to sacrificially love one another in the mundane, in the inconvenient? That is where love will best be strengthened, exercised, and developed. Again, I think often too many times we look at these macro details, and I'm not saying that they're not important. I just think we make them a little bit more important than some of these smaller details the details where it's actually going to be deepened, the details where you're actually in the trenches with one another, deepening your relationship, and in particular, your friendship. Because when the dishes are just piled up and the house is just a mess and life is just getting in the way, the last thing you're thinking about is sex, or that should be the last thing you're thinking about. Because in that moment, what is going to be required of you, in that inconvenience, what is going to be required of you is sacrifice. The strength of love is exercised in the mundane. Your marriage preaches a sermon. Your marriage preaches a sermon. And whether it's good whether it's bad, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, it's going to be developed in the ordinary. And like a seal, not just being this private thing, like a seal, not just being this exclusive private moment, like a seal, it's also going to be publicly displayed. So in the mundane, in the not special, in the ordinary, as you come out into these social and public spheres, your marriage will preach a sermon. Your marriage will preach a sermon. So the question then, are you a seal for one another? Are you your beloved's and is your beloved yours? The macro details are super important what's going to strengthen, deepen it, and further exercise love is going to be in the mundane, the boring, the not special, the inconvenience. The next thing that she goes on to talk about is the strength of love. And I love it because, man, she's 
She's so crafty with it. Here's what she says. She goes on to say, she goes on to say, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Even though death is inevitable, love is persistent. Love will overpower death. The language that she is using is actually really strong language because she is pulling from the culture around her and she is pulling actually from the God of death. She is touching into some cultural items that people will know about and she is saying, yeah, the God that you serve, that might be the God of death, this love is stronger than that God. She continues and she says that love is jealous. It's not always something we tend to think about, that love is jealous. And, and some of you might even be like, yeah, jealous, what does that mean I get to do? It's not so much in the negative sense, okay? When she says that love is jealous, she's actually not talking about it in a negative sense, she's talking about it in a positive sense, the way in which God is jealous for his people. In, see if I have it, in Zechariah 1, this is verse 14, this is what we hear God say. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. In Zechariah 1, we see that God is a jealous God for his people. That the groom is jealous for his bride. And so when we see that she writes that love is jealous, it's jealousy is, man, it's on fire. Why? Because it's for her man, not for anyone else. And she's coming from a place, the jealousy is coming from a place that is drawing him back to herself that when it comes to jealousy in the context of love, it is exercised for the purpose of drawing them back to yourself. Think about the relationship between Christ and the church, that he is jealous for his bride, and his faithful pursuit of his bride is meant to draw her back to himself. Because she has been faithful, no, but because he has been faithful. That's what it means to have a jealous love. She continues, Many waters cannot quench love. Doesn't matter how much water you put on this fire, it's not gonna burn it out. And then she closes this section by saying, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. At the end of the day, love can't be bought. Like she's putting all these things on the table and she will continue to do so. Love cannot be bought. The love that she is speaking about isn't just an emotion, but it is rooted in her identity. And so in this section, we learn that love is personal and that love is persistent. Let's keep going. Verses eight and nine. In this section, her brothers respond. And the reason I want to address family discipleship uh, is for a number of reasons, but one of them is in this section, we're not sure if she's reflecting on a different time, on what her brothers have done in a good sense, because in chapter one, she talked about her brothers uh, as not so nice people. Nevertheless, we're going to look at some family discipleship here. Here's what she says. 
Or here's what they say, excuse me. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. In other words, she's very young. They're reflecting, right, that she is very young. She is not developed yet. And so they go on to say, what shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? In other words, how are we going to protect her until the day comes when she is to be married? They continue, verse nine. If she is a wall, we will build uh, on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with the boards. Real quick, what they're saying is, man, we want her to be a wall. We want her to be fortified and protected. We don't want just anybody coming to meet our sister. We want to make sure that she's standing firm on a solid foundation, and we're going to build that wall, and we're going to fortify everything around her. Uh, because if she is not a wall, she's going to be a door. Well, what happens with the door? When every time it, someone knocks, the door opens, and so people come in and out. And so they're saying, we don't want her to be a door, so we're going to protect her. Here's why I want to talk about family discipleship. Protection, parents, is produced in discipleship. Protection is produced in discipleship. Parents, you are the primary disciple maker. Not me or the culture or ministry. You are the primary disciple maker. Too often, parents focus on moral satisfaction rather than gospel-centered instruction. And as a result, what do we as parents tend to do? As a result, what we tend to do as parents is that we will tend to place our hope in the discipleship of programs and or organizations to do what we ought to be doing for our kids. Even really good things. We might say we'll put our kids in private school or homeschool or this one particular Christian organization. That will do the trick. If it's not that, we're going to put all of the filters on the computer and on the phone and we're going to restrict time and those are good things. But the problem is that we are placing faith in these apps and devices and organizations to do the discipleship for us. We will place our hope in wonderful things like kids ministry, that we will bring our children to Sunday and say, go with teacher, she will tell you about God. We will place our hope on the Sunday morning worship gathering, not for the sake of further discussion or teaching with our kids, but so that we would tell the kids, listen to the pastor, he knows what he's talking about. Too often, parents focus on moral satisfaction rather than gospel-centered instruction. And so as a result, what ends up happening is that rather than discipling our kids, we will sprinkle gospel-centered language under the banner of protection when really they haven't been protected at all. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses goes on to tell the people that this is the word of the Lord. And parents, you are to walk with your kids in the word. You are to sit with your kids in the word. You are to take them with you as you grow and learn the word. Parents, you you are the primary discipleship maker. When it comes to the context of what we're discussing and when it comes to protection, it is developed in discipleship. That discipleship begins at home, around the dinner table, when washing dishes, while cutting the yard, while doing all of the mundane things. That's when discipleship starts. Some of you may have older kids, and so you might 
be uh, tempted to think, uh, well, when it comes to that, man, it's just, you know, it's, it's just been so long, I, I don't know if I could do it. Start somewhere and stop using the age of your kids as an excuse. Stop using your agenda. Stop sacrificing your children's hearts for your personal agenda. Because when it comes to family discipleship and when it comes to building um, an understanding of what it means to be protected and the why we ought to protect our children, instead of doing those things, you're not going to disciple your kids and as a result, the culture will. The culture will disciple your kids. And so parents, you are the primary disciple maker. The responsibility has been handed to you. So disciple your children. I don't care if they're five years old or 25. Especially if they're 25 and still living at the house. You would disciple them in getting a job and getting out. Right? But that responsibility is still on you. Disciple them. And finally, godly character. Let's look at verse 10. She writes, she responds, I should say, I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Here's what she's saying. I'm an adult woman now. I've matured. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. She says, I'm an adult woman now, and I'm going to give myself to my beloved. I have saved myself. I have protected myself. I have guarded myself. I was a wall, and I protected myself. So now I'm willingly going to give myself over to my beloved. She continues. Well, let's just pause there for a little bit. Let's just pause there. There is a difference between confidence and arrogance. There's a difference between confidence and arrogance. Here, when she says, I was a wall, she is certainly pulling from her brother's response, but it's also a military term. She's saying, I have fortified my life. I have a foundation upon which I stand, and I have stood upon conviction. That conviction is what has given her confidence, but she is not confident because she hasn't sinned. She is confident because of her identity. She is confident because of her identity. Don't forget, who you are determines what you do. I love Batman, but he got it wrong. If you guys have seen the Dark Knight trilogies, like I have several times, in the first one, as he's about to save the city, he goes on to say, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. No, you're dumb, right? <laughs> it's who you are determines what you do. And she is standing upon the foundation of conviction that is rooted in her identity that was given to her by God. That's where she's standing. Because sometimes when you read through verse 10, and she says, I was a wall and I gave myself. You're just like, okay, I guess you're so confident. Yes, she is confident. She's not being arrogant. She's not saying, look at how much I didn't screw up. She's not saying, look at the sin I didn't commit. 
She's not saying, I'm actually better than these other people. No, she is saying that she has given herself up to her beloved. Now, this section, as we have talked about in previous sections, could be one that is greatly sensitive because many of us come from a broken sexuality. And we might read verse 10 and say, that's great. You were a wall. You put it up. You did all the right things. Awesome. Where does that leave me? And the beauty of the gospel is that what was broken is now restored in Christ. That you can move forward in confidence because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. That who you were isn't who you are now. And as a result of who you are in Christ, that will determine what you do moving forward. There's a difference between confidence and arrogance. The next thing is that there is a difference between being prideful and knowing your worth. Here's what she says. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. Here's what she's saying. Solomon, babe, you got a ton of vineyards. I know you got money, right? Because I see all of these vineyards. Sass, they're really nice, right? You got some people who do the, some landscape work and take care of them. And then in addition to that, right, you pay them well. They bring you the fruit of the vineyards. That's really good. I like it. You know what? I am worth more than your vineyards. That's what she says. She says, I am worth more than your vineyards. Now remember, all of this is coming out of her identity who is, that is in, in, in God. And so she values her worth. Check it. She values her worth as an image bearer, not as a cultural result. Like she's not just this product of the culture. She values her worth or she knows that her worth is deeply rooted as an image bearer of God himself that she is confident and knows that her worth is in her reflecting the glory of God as an image bearer. That is her worth. I think we can learn a lot from her. But her character is developed through confidence that is rooted in her identity. Her worth is developed, or excuse me, her character is developed in her worth as an image bearer. She knows who she first belongs to. And that is a cultural result. And then finally, he responds. It's the first time he responds in this section. And this is what the guy says. Oh, you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. So poetic, okay? Just as we have talked about, this is still under the banner of godly character, that there's a difference between confidence and arrogance. There's a difference between godly worth and being prideful. Just like that here, there is a difference between being transparent and isolating. Here's what he's saying. He's like, all in love with her. I love you, right? He's all in love with her. One of the things that he is saying in this context, he's like, man, I've come to love you through your companions. It sounds weird. What he means is, I've come to love you and know you in the context of community. 
People have been around us. I've got to meet your family. I got to meet your friends. I went to your, your MC. I went to your church. Sass, I like it. I like you, right? Like he's doing all of these things in the context of community. Now, why is that important? And is this a pitch for community? Yes. And why is it important? Here it is. There's a difference between a good guy and a bad guy. A good guy has nothing to hide. A good guy has nothing to hide. And so he will be transparent when you say, I want you to meet my brothers. I want you to meet my sisters. I want you to meet my family, my friends, my church family. I want you to meet everybody. A good guy's got nothing to hide. And so he's going to do it. No matter how introverted he is, don't pay attention to that. No matter how introverted, if he's legit, he's going to do that. Because a bad guy is gonna to wanna to keep you in isolation. Don't listen to them, don't listen to her. In the context, or not even in the context, but in the series of the Song of Songs, one of the things that we see is not just this interaction between the husband and the wife as they pursue one another, but it is also this interaction of their friends saying things to them, cheering them on, celebrating their love with them, being a part of how they have grown and developed in their relationship. Someone who wants to isolate you doesn't want anything to do with that. Someone who wants to isolate you is going to keep you to himself or herself. I've seen it, right? They're going to keep you to themselves. They're going to say, don't listen to her. Don't listen to him. Don't do this. Don't do that. Just listen to what I tell you. Trust me. They're going to keep them in isolation. By definition, that is an abusive relationship. There is a difference between transparency and isolation. That applies whether you're single, whether you've found interest in someone and you want to pursue them, or you're married. There's a difference between transparency. So if you found interest in someone, be transparent. Get to know them in community. Let your brothers and sisters sniff them out. It's fun. If you're married, you ought to be in community. Why? Because your marriage preaches a sermon. If you're single, be in community. Why? Because others are going to sniff you out and going to try to sanctify you to be more like Jesus. There's a difference between transparency and isolation, a difference between godly worth and pride, a difference between confidence and arrogance. The application of love, everything that we've looked at in the context of love is personal when it comes to marriage, that love is persistent, uh, especially when it comes to uh, family discipleship, uh, and that, that love is pursuing in the sense of how we develop our character. The application of love can only be understood if you know what love is. And the truth is that we do not know love or we do not know what love is until we know the God of the Bible. Because everything else outside of him is a result of culture, is a result of what we think it might be, and maybe a result of only our feelings. 
And what the God, or excuse me, and what the Bible teaches is that if you know God, then you have been loved by him since before time began. As we looked at the application of love in the context of marriage and family and, 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 and character, a couple of things I mentioned, that love is personal, that love is persistent, that love pursues. How is that demonstrated through the person and work of Jesus? That he loves you personally. How does he love you personally? That is that he knows your heart. He knows the depths of your heart and the depths of your character intimately and deeply. And as a result, he is persistent in his grace over you. That you cannot outsend his grace. You cannot put water on the grace to stop it from keeping it coming. Everything is going to happen in the sense of him growing you and sanctifying you into his image that he is going to remind us of our worth through his work on the cross. His love is going to be persistent and his love is going to be pursuing. How do we know that it's pursuing? It is because he has sent his son to die on a cross for sinners. We could say it this way, that the grace of God has adopted you into the family of God that yes, we can look to our relationships to find an idea of what it means to be personal in our love and persistent in our love and even pursuing in our love, but it's going to be concretely defined and looked at through the person and work of Jesus. And so if you know Jesus, then the application of love is a daily response because he has loved you first. It is a daily response. But if you do not know Jesus, then you have a broken or there's a distortion of love. But he invites you to come to know him, that you would repent of your sin and believe that he is God and King. And what is broken will be restored that you can come to know love as personal, persistent, and pursuing by first knowing Christ. And so we end this series with the same thing that we opened up with, that a biblical understanding of love and sex and relationships begins with a biblical understanding of the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray. God, so often we use familiar language, whether it's in our worship or in our prayers or even in our daily life. And what comes to mind is that we use phrases like, God is love, which is correct. But I think we dismiss, if not forget, that that love that was demonstrated for us cost you everything. It wasn't just a plan to be executed. That demonstrating your love for sinners 
cost you your son. That tells us a great deal more about love. That tells us a great deal more about how your love is personal and how it is persistent and how you have been in pursuit of us. God, sometimes I think many of us could even have a distorted view of love. And so God, as we close the Song of Songs, my prayer is that our view of what love is would begin with the person and work of Jesus. That that would be the place and the person to which we begin to understand, understand love. God, as we close our time, would you forgive us of our arrogance? God, would you forgive us of our pride? God, would you convict those who try to isolate others, whether it's in friendships or in our marriage or in our families? God, would you forgive us for being absolute fools? God, would you give us strength to live out our lives in transparency and among one another, not just to preach a sermon, but to glorify you so that we would be sanctified. God, and as we think about your glory, may it not be something that we just talk about on a Sunday morning, but would it be something that we reflect in the ordinary? Would you sanctify us this morning and this week as we go back out into our week and into the world and into work and into school? Would you sanctify us so that we would be more like Jesus? Not so that we would have things done better, but so that we would be more like Jesus. God, I fear that on a sermon like this or a text like this, we might be quick to think that someone else should be here listening to it. Holy Spirit, would you convict those hearts to remind us that it is not someone else that needs to be hearing it. It is us. That we are exactly where you want us to be. We're exactly where you've called us to be. And so Holy Spirit, would you do a work in us as a result of that? God, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, God, may we be sacrificial in our giving for your glory, for the advancing of the gospel, for the sanctification of being your church. God, may we disciple our kids and one another not to go to church, but to be your church. And so may our worship be demonstrated through our giving and sacrifice. God, we love you and thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.